And now, Virgin Most Powerful Radio is pleased to present Hands-On Apologetics with renowned Catholic author and apologist, Gary Machuda. Welcome, everybody, to Hands-On Apologetics. You have entered into Virgin Most Powerful's Apologetics Dojo. Yes, we are back from a long weekend, and uh, it's great to be back in the dojo, get back in the swing of things, you know, and uh, what better way to do that than to field common objections out there. That really is the name of the game in defending the faith, and help us do that. We're going to have Master Apologist Ken Litchfield come on the author of How Old Is Your Church? And Ken's going to share with us uh, some of the objections that he has encountered in the field and uh, address them point by point. So it's always great to have Ken. Actually, we haven't had Ken here in a while, so I want to catch up a little bit with our friend, find out what's going on in his neck of the woods, and uh, get into all that great stuff. Of course, that's going to be coming up on the other side of the break. On this side of the break... We're going to do what we always do. We're going to have our Finding the Fallacy segment where we dive into an informal fallacy and we counter so therefore we can spot bad thinking. And today's Finding the Fallacy is the false attribution fallacy. And we also meet an early church father. Every episode, as you know, here on the show, uh, we increase our data our toolkit full of evidence by looking at the biography of um, uh, an early church father. The early church fathers are witnesses to the ancient faith. And so um, not only what they say, but many times who they are and their own experience uh, shows, uh, gives a special weight to their testimony. So it's important for us to know not only quotes from the early church fathers, but also a little bit about who they are. And today's early church father is one of my personal faves. Uh, you know, you could even dispute whether or not he should be called the early church father because uh, some of his teachings ran afoul in later church. And actually a heresy was named after him. But nevertheless, I think he's a brilliant writer. And maybe unfortunate, it's unfortunate that that happened to him. His name is Origen. In fact, he died for the faith too. So... Origin of Alexandria is our early church father for today. I could probably do a couple of shows on Origin, but uh, alas, you know, we we must get through all the early church fathers on our show. So great stuff in store for us. Finding the Felsey, meet the early church fathers. Got Ken Litchfield coming up on the other side of the break. So let's begin, as we always do, by welcoming all of you to the JoJo. I want to welcome all of you, and uh, it's great to have you with us this Monday morning, uh, all of you listening on radio, and also live stream. As you know, this show is live streamed through various social media outlets, and uh, you can always tune in over there. Also, I want to welcome all of you listening on podcast, which is kind of cool. So hello, future listeners who have not yet heard this program, uh, it's great to have you with us. And by the way, uh, one thing you can do to help us expand our reach on the show, tell your friends about it. 
So please uh, tell all your friends about hands-on apologetics. And uh, one way you could do that, by the way, is to utilize our website, which is virginmostpowerfulradio.org. All you have to do is scroll down, click on the hands-on apologetics link, and boom, you got all the shows right there. And you can share them. You can download them. You can send links to your friends, um, all sorts of cool things. And that way, uh, it grows the exposure of the show and also enables us to help more people, which is really the name of the game. The reason why we get up on Monday morning is to make Jesus better known in love. That's the modus operandi, the motivation behind what we do. So, um, And you can be part of that mission by just simply spreading the news about Virgin Most Powerful Radio and Hands-On Apologetics. Also, I want to tell you about the official Dojo Mailbox, as I do every show. It is questions at handsonapologetics.com. That comes directly to me, the sensei. And uh, I enjoy reading your uh, emails. And also, I appreciate it when you give me the heads up on somebody out there in social media land who is doing a bang-up job explaining and defending the faith and social media I love guest suggestions. So if you have any suggestions out there, please uh, let me know who it is. Uh, give me contact information and also a link to their stuff so I can check it out too. Make sure they're dojo quality and, uh, you know, if everything works out okay, I'll send them an e invite. Hopefully the schedules will square up and we'll have them on the show. We've had several guest suggested, uh, excuse me, listener suggested guests. Got that backwards. Uh, on the show, they've all been, been fantastic, and a couple of them are actually regulars now. So keep up the good work out there, and uh, thank you for informing me on potential guests. All right, so let's go to our Finding the Fallacy. Today's Finding the Fallacy is the False Attribution Fallacy. And I think the name, like some of these <laughs> Finding the Fallacy, says it all. Fast, the False Attribution Fallacy refers to false attribution in general. When a quotation or work is accidentally, traditionally, or based on bad information attributed to the wrong person or group, and uh, that's pretty much the fallacy in and of itself. False attributions, do they happen? Yes, they do. Sometimes they're intentional, sometimes they're not intentional. It's just uh, everybody makes mistakes. Sometimes th uh, wires get crossed and, you know, you uh, attribute something to the wrong person. Uh, that in and of itself isn't bad. However, there are people who do that maliciously. And if you've been into the anti-Catholic literature, as I have, folks, um, you really do get the impression that there are some people out there that uh, aren't above committing today's finding the fallacy, which is the false attribution fallacy. So that means run down your sources. Make sure uh, you yourself don't commit the fallacy. And uh, also, if somebody cites sources, you might want to look it up just to be sure that everything is square and on the level. All right. So let's meet our early church father for today, who is origin of Alexandria. There are Now, this is unusual, because whenever I do the finding of the fallacy, almost always Jurgen's faith early father starts off with the sentence, we have practically no information about this particular individual. Well, this is the opposite. For origin, there's more biographical details about origin than any other of the early theologians, mostly because the sixth book of Eusebius's church history is devoted almost entirely to him. 
He was born about the year 185 A.D. in Alexandria, the child of Christian parents. His father, St. Leonidas, was martyred in the persecution of Septimius Severus in the year 202 A.D. Origen's mother prevented him from accompanying his father to martyrdom by a simple expedient of hiding his clothes. It is generally stated that he castrated himself probably soon after the death of his father, but the statements which lead to this conclusion are open to other interpretations, and the facts are far from certain. It was under the direction of Origen, the successor of Clement of Alexandria, that the school of Alexandria reaches its greatest prominence. About the year 212 AD, he journeyed to Rome, where he made the acquaintance of Hippolytus, another early church father. Uh, he left Alexandria again in the year 215 AD when the emperor uh, Caracalla was looting the city and persecuting its teachers. Going to Caesarea in Palestine, he preached to the congregation there on scripture, though he was a layman at the request of the bishop of Caesarea and Alexander, uh, the bishop of Jerusalem. Now, Demetrius, the bishop of Alexandria, raised strong objections to Origen having been permitted to preach and demanded his return to Alexandria. Fifteen years later, Origen again passed through Caesarea on journey to Greece in order to obviate any further objections to a layman being allowed to preach. Alexander and the other bishop ordained him to the priesthood. Demetrius now was quite thoroughly enraged by the flagrant breach of canons, which apparently demanded that a man be ordained only by the bishop of the diocese of his residence. He called two synods in Alexandria in 230 and 231, which deposed, degraded, and excommunicated Origen, who then moved to Caesarea in Palestine, where he founded a school pattern after that of Alexandria. During the Diocletian persecution, he was tortured and imprisoned, most likely in Caesarea, and as a result of his sufferings, he died in Tyre at the age of 69 in either the year 253 or 254 AD. Now, disputes known as the origin originist controversies in respect to the orthodoxy of his doctrine arose never during his lifetime, but three times after his death in 300, 400, and 550. He was a great scholar, great theologian who strove always to be Catholic in the faith, yet he came finally to be regarded as a heretic, which accounts largely for the fact that so many of his writings have perished utterly while the extent of his suffering terribly at the hands of the expurgators, the interpreters, and the translators. Um, much, of course, has been written by Origen. Uh, yeah, indeed, he wrote a lot. But there remains a great need for a fresh and uh, thorough reinvestigation of his doctrine. It must be pointed out, however, that it is very dubious that such a reinvestigation could reach conclusions of any satisfactory degree of certainty. As hinted above, his literary productivity was tremendous. Eusebius compiled a list of his writings, but even the list has perished. So Jerome knew of the list and said that Origen's writings totaled some 2,000 books. Epiphanius gives the figure of 6,000 books. We possess only a small fraction of his literary output. And that is our early church father for today, Origin of Alexandria.
Coming up next, Ken Litchfield answering common objections. Stay tuned. Now, back to Hands-On Apologetics with Gary Machuda. If you'd like to join the conversation, call 888-526-2151. Here's Gary. And welcome back, everybody, to Hands-On Apologetics. And, uh, yeah, one of my favorite early church fathers, Origin of Alexandria. In fact, he was quite an apologist himself. Uh, he wrote uh, several uh, books against various uh, anti-Catholic works. And so Origen had to know how to answer common objections. And that's the name of the game, folks, when it comes to defending the faith. There are common objections. There are uh, objections that you run across time and time again. And the good thing about common objections is you become proficient at answering them. And you start learning the details behind various objections. And uh, so it's important to get a, a good overview of the typical objections and also typical responses that you can give um, and practice them as well. And I, I've actually, uh, I tell my students on homeschool connections, I do online apologetics instructions for middle school, high school kids. I said, practice on your friends and family. And you can just walk up to them and say, hey, did you ever wonder how we got the canon of Scripture? And chances are they probably say, yeah, sometimes I wonder how, it, you know, is there lost books of the Bible? Then you can just go into your defense. You know, you could just raise the objection and practice on them and see if it makes sense. Because uh, the more you practice, the more proficient you get. The more proficient you get, the more persuasive you'll be and uh, more articulate. And that gives God the uh, an instrument that he can work with. Of course, God can work with any of us, no matter how proficient. But nevertheless, it's good for us to be trained and to learn things. So that's my apologetic hack for today is, uh, be, you know, learn what the church teaches on a particular issue. That's step number one. Step number two, get a good apologetics work that will give you the common objections that will be raised against whatever particular doctrine you're looking into. Uh, and in a way, you know, apologetic books are kind of like reading the playbook of your opponent. Because uh, once you learn the objections, then the the same books will help you uh, develop a good response. In fact, uh, there's several books I could recommend, including Carlo Broussard's new book on meeting the Protestant response, I think is excellent. Or meeting the Protestant challenge, either one of, or both of those books would be fantastic. So first, learn what the church teaches on a particular issue so you know that what you're defending actually is what the church teaches and not what you think it teaches. Um, very, very important. Number two, look it up in Catholic apologetic works. Find out what exactly uh, are the objections that you likely encounter uh, during this. And then the third one is to practice. Practice, 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 because... Um, you'll be more comfortable if you practice, uh, you'll be more confident if you practice. And the last thing is the most important of all, when you practice things, uh, you'll be, learn it yourself better, right? Um, I'm a teacher, my wife's a teacher, uh, I have lots of friends who are teachers, every one of us can tell you, you really don't know a subject 
until you actually go out and teach the subject. Well, once you do that, you really get a good handle on all the nuances and aspects of uh, the, the, whatever topic or subject you're teaching on. So you got to do that, folks. You got to get that practical knowledge too. And like I said, you don't have to do this, you know, in a hot situation where you have an opposer to faith or objector or anti-Catholic or something like that. You can do it with friends and family. Uh, just uh, practice that way or do it in your car. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> just raise the question yourself and and pretend somebody's there and give a defense. I have to tell you, I do that sometimes. And sometimes you'll get some strange looks from the people who are next to you at the stoplight or whatever. But, you know, it really does help because you're able to think things through. But it, But nothing beats actually sitting across from another person and trying to explain and defend the faith. And uh, so as we're getting our guest uh lined up for us. We're having some technical problems. I'm going to recommend some books. Let's do some apologetic books that if you run into an an objection and you looked into what the church teaches about it, of course, go to the catechism. That's a great first stop to point you in in line of where else you can go in scripture and, and also in the official doctrines of the church. But there are lots of really great books out there that, um, you can go to next for the objections. I already mentioned two, Carlo Broussard's uh, two bo- two books. The first is Meeting the Protestant Challenge, and the other is Meeting the Protestant Response. I love Carlo really breaks down into bite-sized chunks, you know, all the objections and the responses to the objections. Um, and he's such a clear thinker. Both books are available through Catholic Answers Press, and Catholic Answers Press is such a great outlet for excellent material for defending the faith. Uh, it, again, you have to, uh, if you're dealing with, let's say, theistic objections, like someone who doesn't believe in the existence of God, I love John DeRosa's book, One Less God Than You. That's also put out by Catholic Answers Press. Where basically he, what he does is he tackles atheistic slogans, and although these technically aren't like true objections to the existence of God, they nevertheless are like so popular and so common. Uh, they uh, really need to be uh, tackled in a particular way. And what I love about what John does in that book is he directs you as to what questions you should ask how you should approach certain statements. And uh, quite frankly, there's a lot of those uh, atheistic slogans floating out there in the blogosphere and uh, social media and so on. So you really do need to be equipped for that. I I recommend that book. I'm just looking over here on my bookshelf. Uh, Let's see. I would also recommend, of course, Carl Keating's Catholicism Fundamentalism. That's the book actually that got me started in apologetics. It's you know, it's a classic, so it's not super up-to-date. In fact, I think some of the ministries that he covers at the beginning of the book are now defunct. Some of the people have gone to meet the Lord. Uh, but nevertheless, he has a section in there where he tackles objections. And that was where I started cutting my teeth in apologetics on Carl Keating's uh, objections section of his book. And it's still good today. 
those uh, the beautiful thing about common objections is they're always around. So it doesn't matter really how old your resource is. You could still have a really good apologetic resource for learning typical responses. I think Carl Keating's book is excellent in that regard. There's also, um, okay, there's also um, a three book set. Which talking about, it's a little old. It's twenties and I think it's in the thirties was when it was put together. Actually Carl Keating and I talked about it on our classic apologetic show is Radio Replies by Rumble and Cardi. That's a classic. You literally have a couple of thousand common objections in this three books set with some really good uh solid pithy answers. That are okay, so this is- very helpful. So um, that's one uh, resource that you can have on hand, and it covers a lot. Some of the the common objections no longer are common. Uh, they, you know, it's more pertain to the 30s and 40s. But nevertheless, uh, those those that resource radio replies is fantastic. But we have our own version of radio replies with our good friend. Ken Litchfield. Ken, as you know, is a lifelong Catholic and member of Holy Family Parish in Memphis, Michigan. He's the former Grand Knight of All Saints Memphis Knights of Columbus Council, and after reading the Left Behind books, decided to investigate his faith more deeply, and from that was bloomed an apologist. In fact, he published his book, How Old Is Your Church?, which is a collection of 25 short essays from a much larger library of essays explaining and defending the Catholic faith. And Ken Litchfield, welcome back to Hands-On Apologetics. Hi, Gary. Great to be here. Uh, sorry it's been so long, and sorry things didn't hook up right away, but uh, life goes on. <laughs> oh, yes. You know, it's Skype. You never know what's going to go on, especially with a live program. But I appreciate you coming in by phone. Uh, so it's been, yeah, it has been a little while, hasn't it, Ken? Uh, so what have you been up to? Um, well, mostly working. Um, you know, summer is a more busy season for me, um, although I got three cars I have to do in the next um, six months-ish, you know, maybe eight months. Oh. So um, nice. the, the busyness continues. Now, yeah, um, so you restore cars. Like what, what models are the cars you're restoring? Let's see. Um, I just got done with a 68 Mustang working on a 64 um, Falcon right now. Um, I have two Tucker interiors to do and a 1929 Packard Phaeton. Wow. Awesome. <laughs> That's a great line of work. Yeah. yeah. I, I, I don't know how, how much fun it is actually doing the hard labor, but these old mm-hmm. cars are beauties. Yeah. It's, the labor really isn't that hard, um, and, you know, it's just a, a bit of work that you just got to keep at. Uh, yeah. Some right. things are heavy. Sometimes you got to pull stuff really hard. But Yeah, yeah especially when it's been on for, like, 50 or 60 years, huh? Uh-huh. <laughs> I've bailed hay before, and, uh, you know, the... <laughs> Upholstery work isn't that hard compared to bailing hay. <laughs> yeah, no, that's true. That's true. Now, uh, I'm announced to you as a former Grand Knight at uh, All Saints Memphis Knights of Columbus. Uh, what's cooking with the Knights mm-hmm. of Columbus in your area? 
Let's see. Um, well, we just had our Polish dinner and our fall sale um, where we sell, you know, like uh, pumpkins and um, hay bales or straw bales, you know, corn stalks, you know, those fall kind of decorations. Mm-hmm. Um, and we also sell mums for, you know, uh, decorating in front of your house or planting. Uh, my wife likes to plant the mums and if they don't come back, you know, she gets pretty disappointed. We lost two out of five last year, but, you know. Well, two out of five isn't too bad. <laughs> right. Yeah. All right. So, yeah, good. You know, I, I was going to ask you, is the Knights, uh, are they going to be involved on in striking down Proposition 3, which basically installs abortion as part of the state constitution? Um, yes, we're working hand-in-hand hand with our church on that. Um Good. And, you know, the Knights of Columbus, well, we, let's see, we're doing a, a rosary rally this week. Um, and in November, we'll be doing a uh, a walk for life um, from the church to the cemetery where we pray for the unborn and things like that. So right. we're hard at it. Awesome. That's good to hear. Uh, we'll get into the common objections after the break. We're chatting with Ken Litchfield, author of the book, How Old Is Your Church? More to come right after this, folks. You listen to Hands-On Apologetics. This is Jesse Romero. You're listening to Hands-On Apologetics with Gary Machuda on Virgin Most Powerful Radio. And welcome back, everybody. We're chatting with Ken Litchfield and answering common objections and uh yeah, Ken, uh, you cut your teeth on uh, social media. You have a lot of experience answering questions on various platforms and so on. And uh, one area that we were talking about last few times you've been on is that you actually have done apologetics on the other side of the world via the Internet. Are, is that still going on, or was that, uh, did you pretty much finish that up? Uh I'm still doing uh, classes with uh, Kashif over there in Pakistan. So, yeah, that's still going on. Okay. Yeah, excellent. Yeah, so uh, I think we're trying to switch over to uh, Skype. So maybe you can mute the speaker there, and uh, I'll just keep talking until we get you up on Skype. (laughs) Uh, you got to love live programs, folks, uh, especially when it comes to technologies like uh, social media stuff like Zoom and Skype, and you never know what's going to happen. So uh, let's see. Richard, are, are we ready on Skype? Okay, I think. Okay, so we got the audio on Skype. Okay, Ken, can you hear me? Okay, I can't hear Ken. Can you hear Ken, me? Uh, yeah, I can hear you now. Yes. Okay. All right. So, uh, yeah. So, so I'm sorry. You said that uh, you're no longer doing it, or are you still uh, doing? Yes, I'm still connecting with the folks over in Pakistan. Uh, they had a lot of flooding over there, and uh, because they got you know more rain than they've had in the past like 60 years. Wow. Uh, you know, they haven't had rain like this you know for 60 years, and it's uh, been really rough for them. Uh, a lot of houses got wiped out um, and you know, a lot of flooding, 
you know, kind of like, you know, what we're experiencing down in Florida here in the U.S. right now and, you know, up the East Coast and things like that. Um, the only thing is, like, you know, for here in the U.S., you know, we staged, um, you know, rescue crews and, you know, rebuilding crews to help rebuild after the hurricane came through. And they were staged before the hurricane even came. Well, over in Pakistan, things every everything just gets wiped out, and then they have to start trying to rebuild after that. Mm-hmm. So, we just have a whole lot more resource resources and planning here, and uh, yeah. yeah, a lot of their houses are you know just blocks that are stacked up and then stuccoed on the outside with a flimsy roof. Uh, my KFC council, we uh, donated some money to them over the summer, and I've sent them money too. And uh, just to get them tarps, you know, so they can string them up anywhere they can on dry land just to get out of the rain. Because uh, right. otherwise they're just stuck in the rain. Wow. Well, we'll, have to de- we'll definitely keep them in our prayers. So, mm-hmm. uh, yeah. So, without further ado, why don't we jump into some common objections and uh, how to answer them? Right. Let's do some actual apologetic stuff. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah. All right. Well, what's okay. the first on tap? Okay. So the first question um, came from my friend in Africa, Nam Azwa. And he asked, you know, from the fact that Eastern Catholic priests and Orthodox priest Mary do Eastern Orthodox or do Eastern Catholic nuns or sisters marry, um, and I answered that, you know, in the Eastern Rite of the Catholic Church, the nuns and sisters do not marry. They live a life of prayer and service in celibacy. Um, and then he asked, well, do the Orthodox nuns and sisters marry? You know, because he's thinking, like, if the priests can marry, maybe the nuns can marry. Uh, but nope, the, uh, the monks and the nuns in Orthodoxy um, are both celibate, um, and most of them serve a life of, you know, prayer and service in a monastery or, you know, like a convent kind of thing. It's a more monastic life. Uh, They devote their life to serving to God. And the bishops of the Orthodox churches are usually drawn from the monasteries, and that's why their bishops are also, you know, celibate. Mm -hmm. Interesting. Um, yeah, that's an interesting objection. That uh, sort of uh, atypical. That's a really good one too. Yeah, you know, something I hadn't really ever thought about in the past. But right. you know, you get these other questions, and you know, I have to do some research and learn some more. There you go. Very good. Yeah. Um, yeah. Interesting stuff. Uh, and then uh, he went on to ask about, like, in the Catholic Church, you know, how do we distinguish between nuns and sisters? And, you know, generally in the Catholic Church, at least here in the U.S., the terms are interchangeable. You know, a nun is a sister, a sister is a nun. But there are some nuns that, you know, are cloistered nuns, and they stay pretty much in their convent and prayer, you know, live a life of prayer and service in their convent. But then there's also the sisters that go out and you know, serve in the public um, and, you know, like as teachers and other uh, social outreach or- organizations like that. 
mm-hmm. take care of the sick and uh, the poor and things like that. So it's kind of like a nun would be in a convent only, but a sister could be in a convent or out in the public. Okay. Yeah, I always wondered about that distinction because, like you said, in uh, common parlance, we use those two words interchangeably, but there is a distinction. Yeah. Um, and another one that I got from Kashif over there in Pakistan uh, recently was that when does personal conviction go too far? And, you know, that's personal conviction, of course, you want to f- define that term in that, uh, you know, when you feel that you're definitely right and uh, you like know in your heart and you feel that the Holy Spirit is guiding you in that direction. So that's your personal conviction that you are right. Mm-hmm. Uh, and you may or may not be right, but you at least feel that you are right. Um, and because personal conviction is a subjective feeling, it can be misleading that way. Mm-hmm. And that's why Jesus didn't say, oh, just trust your heart and you'll be fine. Jesus left his authority with his church, and he promised to be with his church until the end of the age. So we need to use our personal convictions within the boundaries of what the church teaches. And that way we can properly direct our energy along God's plan um, and not, you know, go and start our new version another version of Christianity because we were personally convicted that we had the right interpretation or something like that. Right. Yeah, so it always operates within God's revealed truth and never against it or uh, not against the, you know, the official teachings of the church because uh, otherwise the church wouldn't be a shepherd if the the flock could have its own personal convictions and and go wherever it wants. Mm -hmm. And, you know, Perhaps, you know, a lot of Protestant pastors feel that way. They're, you know, they're personally convicted that they're teaching the gospel to their flock, whether they are or not, Um, you know, because, you know, it's up to them whether they have the right teaching or not. Um, You know, if they're in a more organized denomination of Christianity, you know, there might be some higher ups that are telling them, you know, you're doing it right or you're doing it wrong. But you know, if it's an independent church, you know, an independent Baptist church or something, you know, as long as you got a congregation <laughs> that'll pay you, yeah, right. you can teach whatever you want. Yeah, yeah, you become your own pope. But actually, the funny thing is, it's actually you would be even bigger than the, or greater than the pope because the pope himself is bound by sacred tradition and scripture, and you know, what I mean, uh, he. He, he can't do whatever he wants, but but if you're in your own independent church with your own congregation, you can say and do whatever you like. Yep. Yeah, the, the Pope is, as you say, you know, the independent preacher, he can, he's better than the Pope because the Pope at least is limited by, you know, what the church has taught in the past. Yeah. He can't just make something up out of, out of uh, the air, you know? Yeah, yeah. Yeah, and you know, that also brings up the thorny issue of conscience, too. So your personal conviction can also entail one's conscience, and uh, you shouldn't violate your conscience, right? So uh, maybe we could uh, address that as well. How does that work with conscience? Right. 
Well, the Catholic Church always tells us to, you know, um, follow our own conscience, but it's a uh, informed conscience, you know, not just what you think or you feel, but what you think or feel based on what you know. Mm. And that's why the church teaches that, you know, we'll be judged on our judgment day on what we knew and what we did with that knowledge. So if you don't know something is wrong and you do that, then you're it's not a sin for you. But if we're going to, the church requires us to learn the faith so that we can practice the faith. Um, and if you're going to teach the faith, then you definitely need to know the faith or be teaching what the church gives you to teach to others. So like if you're a catechism teacher, it doesn't mean you have to, you know, study at the seminary for 10 years and know everything the church teaches. The, the church will provide the materials that you're supposed to teach the students and that those materials are approved by the church. And so all you have to do is teach what the church teaches and not your own opinion. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Very good. Yeah. Very important qualifications that we we must not violate our conscience, but we have a duty to shape our conscience in line with what is true. And, you know, uh, uh, I think people sometimes skip that first part, you know, and they just say, well, I have to follow my conscience. So I don't uh, in conscience, I don't have to go to mass on Sundays or something like that, you know. Right. Yeah, I think it's okay. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Exactly. So, yeah, that's an important qualification. So, yeah, I, I hear the music starting to come up. And uh, so we'll hit pause right there. We're chatting with Ken Litchfield, ladies and gentlemen, the author of How Old Is Your Church? Answering Common Objections. More to come right after this. Now, back to Hands-On Apologetics with Gary Machuda. If you'd like to join the conversation, call 888-526-2151. Here's Gary. And welcome back, everybody. We are chatting with Ken Litchfield, talking about answering common objections and actually even some not-so-common objections. So you threw some curves in there as well. Uh, okay, so what's the next objection on tap here? Um, let's see, the next one I have is from uh, Namazwa over in Africa again, uh, and he asked, you know, well, how did Paul come to know such rich theology? Was there vigorous training as the church does nowadays? And, uh, of course, in our current time, you know, we have our priests that go to seminary and, you know, they train for like four years, um, well, two years of theology, I think or philosophy, and then four years of theology. So it takes a long time for them to become a priest. And one of the things the Knights of Columbus does is help pay for that training for these priests, you know, before they uh, move up in the seminary and the archdiocese helps pay for the difference. Um, so Paul didn't have a seminary to go to, but we also learn from uh, the New Testament that uh, Paul was a student of Gamaliel, uh, who was a famous Jewish rabbi of the time. So Paul really knew the Jewish faith. And first century Christianity grew out of the first century Judaism. And if you really study 
history and the early church, you know, you find that basically Christianity and the Catholic Church is Judaism plus Jesus. Of course, it's developed and grown since then, but, you know, everything in the Catholic Church can be traced back to, like, the first century, and a lot of it is based on first century Judaism. So that's how Paul knew so much great theology is because he was a well-trained Jewish rabbi. And then uh, he was aware of Jesus because Jesus was going around and preaching and he was working with the rabbis, you know, fighting against Jesus because, you know, they thought Jesus was not the Messiah. But when he got struck down and blinded, uh, you know, Jesus spoke to him, and once he got baptized by Ananias, he could see again, and he came to realize that, yeah, Jesus is the guy I've been fighting against, and he's God, and I should not fight against him anymore. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and yeah, very eventually, good. Um, eventually, he goes to see Peter, James, and John to make sure that what he is teaching is what the church teaches. Um Peter, James, and John, they didn't give Paul a copy of the New Testament uh, and told him, well, this is the stuff you need to know about Jesus, <laughs> because right. it hadn't been written yet. <laughs> and, of course, Paul's letters, you know, which make up about half of the New Testament, you know, weren't even written yet. So uh, this idea that, you know, we should only go by what's in the Bible or the Bible has everything we need, you know, was totally foreign to Paul. Paul was familiar with the Old Testament. He learned about what Jesus taught um, and dismissed it at first. But once, you know, he became a Christian, you know, he became a zealot for the Lord. And, well, he had a lot of zeal for the Lord, not so much a zealot, like a Jewish zealot. But he was willing to die for Christ and what Jesus taught and pass on his teaching um, and a lot of the letters that we have from Paul are letters to churches that he founded or was visited and to give them guidance. And uh, he tells them, you know, I, I look forward to coming there and preaching to you um, and hold fast to the sound teaching you have previously received. And, you know, people think that... Uh, you know, some people might think that, you know, when Paul came to those churches, you know, he was preaching out of the New Testament. But no, he was just preaching about, you know, what he had learned from Peter, James, and John, and what the church had been teaching. And it's important to get the right mindset when you're reading the Bible, that, you know, it was something that developed and was developing as it was being written. Jesus didn't leave the New Testament behind written down for the early Christians to refer to. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And uh, so to understand what Jesus did, they have to go to the Old Testament. And like you said, you know, Gamaliel was like a towering figure in first century Judaism. I mean, even rabbis today, if you were to ask a rabbi if they know about Gamaliel the elder, they would know about him. Uh, that's how important he was, and Paul was his best student. Mm-hmm. And, you know, kind of along that same line, uh, another person asked, you know, Bobby J., 
he asks in Acts 18.24, it says, A certain Jew named Apollos, born in Alexandria, an eloquent man, and mighty in the scriptures, came to Ephesus. So his question is, how could a man in 60 AD be mighty in the scriptures when the Pope's cult supposedly didn't give him a Bible until early, until the end of the third, the three hundreds, basically, is what he writes. And again, for Protestants uh, who are from a new religion, and the Bible has always been around for their the entire history of their religion, um, they assume that the Bible has just always been assembled. They don't understand that when the New Testament refers to the scriptures, it's actually referring to the Old Testament. So uh, the certain Jew named Apollos, the scriptures for him was the Old Testament. And with a name like Apollos, you know, that sounds very Greek. Yeah, <laughs> and so his Old Testament scriptures would have been the Septuagint. <laughs> which is a real problem for Protestants because the Septuagint has the seven books that are now missing from their Bibles. And your uh, series of videos, your channel, Apocryphal Apocalypse, you know, covers that real great, you know, uh, how the Old Testament that the Protestants have now is not the Old Testament that the early Christians had. And the Jews at the time of Christ, you know, most of them were following the Septuagint. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And by the way, ladies and gentlemen, I did not put Ken up to advertising my <laughs> channel on YouTube. I appreciate it. Well, I listened to it, you know, so I got to share it. <laughs> <laughs> well, I'm honored, my friend. Yeah. So, uh, yeah. So if they're studying scripture, it'd be the Septuagint, which would have the Deuterocanonical books. Mm-hmm. And another one that you know Protestants usually point to is Second Timothy, chapter three, where uh, Paul writes to Timothy, you know, all Scripture is inspired and useful for teaching and guidance and things like that. But if you back up just one verse, you know, Paul tells Timothy, "Remember the Scriptures of your youth." And since Timothy had a Jewish mother and a Greek father and lived in a Greek city the scriptures of his youth would have been the Septuagint. Right. Which, again, is a problem for Protestants. Yeah, yeah absolutely. And their preachers teach them, you know, that, you know, 2 Timothy 3.16, well, that tells you to go just by the Bible. <laughs> but <laughs> if you just back up one verse, you find out, well, that's the Old Testament, not the New Testament. <laughs> right. Yeah, good point. Good point. But there's plenty more out there. Um, let's see. Oh, yeah. Uh, Kashif, my friend over in Pakistan, he asked about how does one avoid falling into legalism? And again, the key is, you know, not just what you do, but the intention you have behind it. Uh, the Jews had to do certain things because that's what God called them to do. This is how you're supposed to worship me. This is what you're supposed to do to celebrate the different feasts and things like that. And if you just go through the motions, you know, that doesn't draw you closer to God. So it's going through the motions 
and thinking about what God is calling us to do. And so the Jews, you know, they got some of them got all caught up in, you know, following the law real close um, so that they wouldn't break the law or even come close to breaking the law. But the law is not the thing that saves you. And Paul reminds the early Christians about that over and over again. You know, nobody is saved by the works of the law. <laughs> We're saved by faith in Jesus. And But if you have faith in Jesus, you will do what Jesus calls us to do. And that's why just going to church isn't good enough. You have to live the faith in between that hour you spend in church on Sunday, every day, all day. Yeah. Amen. Yeah, absolutely. So, uh, yeah, so the law is kind of like, um, you know, it's, it's as if uh, someone said, um, I'm a good, what makes me a, a son is that I mow the lawn, that I do chores, you know, that I follow the rules of the house. That's why I'm a son. It's like, no, that's what a son does. What makes you a son is that, you know, that uh, you have parents, right? That the, they're your parents. So, you know, the law doesn't save in that sense. It's kind of like the, the rules for sonship. But you you need to be united to God. So, yeah, really good points. Uh, we might have... You know what? I, I don't want to take a chance in raising an objection and then the music come up and <laughs> and go over us. But I, I think that's more than enough uh, really good objections and also unusual ones as well. So I, I love the mix. Mm -hmm. uh, Ken, so I know you have a vast array of uh, online stuff that you could send to people for free. So tell us how they can get a hold of that. Sure. Um, well, my book, How Old Is Your Church, has 25 of my most uh, popular uh, requests. Um, most common, it answers most of the common questions. But I have about 250 writings now, and I freely share them with other people. Uh, all you have to do is send me an email at kenlitchfield61 at gmail.com, and I'll send you the whole batch for free. Awesome. Yeah, you can't beat that price. <laughs> yeah, especially for, uh, you know, great material like uh, that you produced. Uh, why don't you give one more time, just in case somebody was grabbing their pen and they couldn't write it down. How do you get a hold of you? It's kenlitchfield61 at gmail.com. Excellent. Well, Ken, hey, thank you so much for coming on the show. We appreciate it. Thanks for having me, Gary. Look forward to being on again. All right, my friend, that's Ken Litchfield. Yeah, definitely take advantage of his offer. So uh, get great material and get loaded up to be able to explain, defend the faith, clarity, charity, confidence. And talk about clarity, charity, and confidence. Coming up next, High Impact After Talk, coming at you with the Terry and Jesse Show. Thank you so much for listening. God willing, we'll be back again tomorrow. Do this with you.